Hi folks, I'm Jason. Welcome to Filmography Club. Today we wrap up our season-long mission of covering the English language work of Denis Villeneuve, which means that in this episode we're talking about Dune Part 1, 2021 film directed, of course, by Villeneuve. Screenplay by John Spates, Denis Villeneuve himself, and Eric Roth. Cinematography by Greg Fraser. Edited by Joe Walker, and music by Hans Zimmer. Today I'm joined by Patrick Rogers, a native Nashvilleian. He's worked at the Nashville scene for 13 years. Before making the move to editor-in-chief in 2017, he served as music listings editor, calendar editor, music editor, and managing editor, writing and editing film, music, culture, and news features and criticism. He's contributed to Vice, Rolling Stone, In Focus, Ion Magazine, Garden and Gun, and Spin, among others, and he studied both film and journalism. He also writes some fiction, plays a few instruments, mostly the drums, and lives with his dog, Ernie, who he describes as a delightful idiot. Got a couple of those myself. Oh, and be aware, Filmography Club is not a spoiler-free podcast, so we do get into spoilers for not only this movie, but for the entire novel, which means that we're going to be spoiling Dune Part 2, the upcoming sequel. So just be aware of that. So now I present to you my talk with Patrick Rogers about the 2021 adaptation of the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, Dune Part 1. And I'm joined by Patrick Rogers. Patrick. Hello, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're here to talk about Denis Villeneuve's latest work. Uh, For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to call it Dune Part One. That's what the title card says. I know all the marketing just says Dune, but I think they're going to retroactively retitle this one Dune Part One once Part Two comes out. I I have that feeling. So you're a big Dune fan, to my understanding, and you're also a big Denis Villeneuve fan. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about your relationship with his work when you first came across it. And also, I guess I'm asking you two questions at once. I'd like you to talk to me about Dune and when you first ran into that and your relationship with its various iterations. I want to say that the first of his films I saw was Prisoners. Hard to say. Um, Obviously, you've been going through the filmography, so you can tell me what what year did that one come out? Was that 20... I want to say it was 13. 13? Okay, I was going to say 12, maybe. Yeah, somewhere in there. There's a little confusion on my end about whether Enemy or Prisoners was released first, because I think that they were released in opposite order. Like the one was filmed first, but it got a wide release after the other. Gotcha. I think that's right, but I'm not 100% on that. Well, I recall seeing that um, many, you know, around when it came out and um, just sort of started tracking um his career loved sicario and that's when i was like okay let me go all in on on this guy what's his deal and uh also i'm a a huge blade runner fan so was excited that he was picking up in 2049 um was really pleased with that film i loved it A, a lot of people have mixed feelings about it i often have mixed feelings about this sort of late revisitation sequel but i thought he just handled that one just did a wonderful job. He didn't exactly recapture what Ridley Scott did with Blade Runner, but that's not exactly what he was trying to do. Um, and so I thought, oh, this is a guy who can kind of interpret material in a unique way, um, but keep the thread going. So that's when I really like, you know, I was like, okay, I'm sold on this guy. So the second I found out he was developing Dune, I was I was pretty excited. Now, I had not read Dune at that point when it was first announced. I had seen David Lynch's Dune a couple 
couple of times. I'm a big David Lynch fan as well. And that's an, a pretty odd one in his filmography for many reasons that maybe we'll get into. But, you know, loved loved it, was kind of um, intrigued by the universe, by the world building, but still hadn't outside of, you know, sort of general pop culture references to it, hadn't really dug into Dune. But when I found out that he was going to direct the adaptation, I decided to sort of dive into the book series uh, in earnest and read the first two books revisited the David Lynch version and listened to a lot of podcasts and started, I'm a little bit of a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can't identify with this at all, but I'm a little bit of a nerd. When I get into something, I sort of go all in yeah. and my poor girlfriend had to listen to me talking about the universe of Dune for a few months there. Um, <laughs> so just kind of exploring yeah. the, the, the universe and all that, but yeah, just really started getting into the books themselves and reading uh, about that universe really a year back a year. In, well, actually now that it's March, maybe a little bit more um, mm-hmm. um, during the pandemic, I was like, all right, what can I dig into? And, and Dune was it. Okay. So you've read the first two novels. So far. yes, you, you yes. And I'm kind of, I, I, I may read the third. I doubt I'll dive. Well, you know, one day I probably will. <laughs> I probably won't read any of the um, sort of later era, any that his son wrote. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and I'm also pretty aware of uh, the plot that continues after the first three, just from listening to podcasts and reading. Just yeah. On yeah same here. So I know where it goes. And I, I think it's kind of amazing and fantastic how really deeply weird it gets. And I'm wondering how, if the series with Villeneuve or anybody else continues how far down the path, the golden path, they'll go with the weirdness. Right. But I'm pretty familiar with how it ends up and in, in, in at least the first, you know, four, five, six books, something like that. Yeah. I know some of the broad strokes, but I'm still working on the novel. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I opened it a little while ago, but I've just been busy with other stuff and I come back to it when I can. It's dense. It's, yeah. it's a, a dense, dense read and I love it, but it's not like a zippy, you'll find yourself reading and rereading paragraphs. When I remember when I first started writing it, I felt like I read the first 10 pages 20 times over mm-hmm. just to make sure I was, but then you sort of get with the pace of it. And it's really fun to sort of enter that world after the first, you know, it's, it's split into the three books. The, the book itself has the three parts rather by the end of that first one, I think I kind of got the, got the pace of it. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. No, but I, I, like I said, I know the broad strokes about where the universe is going I know that there were, I believe, uh, Herbert himself wrote the first five novels in the sequel. Right. And they all take place like thousands of years apart from one another. Uh, to some extent, I mean, the first two. So Dune Messiah, Children of Dune, those first three. I don't think it's a span of, of thousands. I think especially the second book doesn't jump that far uh, okay. forward, but uh, as it goes along, it does span a really, really long time. And that's something that I, I appreciate about the work that also um, Asimov does like with the foundation series, just covering a huge amount of time, which you don't really see uh, in much sci-fi or anything. It's just breathtaking how much went into this and the, the, the breadth of it is just, Oh, I mean, Frank Herbert, very impressive. That's what, yeah, that's kind of what's like intoxicating about um, the series is, is how his world building, the lore that he creates around it, how everything feels built in. It almost feels like you're, you're dropping into a universe that existed even with the first book for, you know, 
You know, you could swear that this is the fifth or 10th or 20th book in a series, you know, especially since it starts, you know, millennia in the future of uh, yeah. in, in our, in our millennia from now in our world. Yeah. It starts out on year 10,000 something, but I don't even know if they're using the Gregorian calendar or if they've I, moved on to something else. And there's uh nerdier something. folks than I, which I guess is really saying something who, who have, have broken that down a little bit to, as to whether it's technically like 10,000 AD or not. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, somebody can correct me, but I, I think it is it's some roughly like 8,000 years in the future or thereabouts. Yeah. And then by the end of it, I think we're somewhere in the year, what we would consider to be the year, like 35,000, but they're on some other calendar. Or- yeah. It goes deep, deep, deep into the future. And, uh, you know, he's covering generations and generations of, of folks. So yeah, just the, the, even to have that capacity for imagination as an author, I think is really cool. But yeah, to answer your question earlier, Prisoners and Enemy both released in 2013. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Prisoners first, but I think it was, I think it came after, I think it was filmed after Enemy. Yeah. But anyway. And then I feel like, I want to say Sicario was like 2015. Yep. 2015. Yeah. The next year was Arrival. Yeah. He did three right. in a row, three years in a row. Sicario, yeah. Arrival, Blade Arrival. Runner, 2049. Blade Runner, yeah. And I, I didn't mention Arrival, but I was a huge fan of Arrival. I think that's, even more than, sorry, I don't mean to get off the yeah, well, what we're talking about right now, but I think even more than uh, Blade Runner Arrival is when I clicked in with him and really started paying attention to his career and, and, and watching him. I think it was that one and Sicario discovered both of those movies right around the same time. And they, they both yeah. just blew me away, especially Sicario. Now, you know, <laughs> Arrival did too. <laughs> but they're both so uniquely their own films. He does sort of have a visual style, the way he he sets up shots and that sort of thing. But as far as, well, literally the subject matter, but then just the character, the framing. I mean, he can cover, he can do all kinds of things. I'm, 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 yeah, very versatile. Yeah, prisoners. It, when you describe that to somebody, it's heavy drama, and yet mm-hmm. it looks like a Villeneuve movie. Enemy, just this weird head trip. He does have certain visual hallmarks. The book's great, or at least so far it is. Gets better and better. I did what Villeneuve wanted me to do, and I got up off my couch, and I went into a theater for the first time in two years Mm -hmm. and watched it in IMAX the way he wanted us to watch it. Mm -hmm. Gigantic IMAX image. The the sound, I mean, it was shaking. My my guts were shaking. (laughs) Yeah. The scope is is just overwhelming. Scope and the scale, yeah. I, I did as well. I did the IMAX thing on my first viewing and I watched it a couple weeks later on HBO Max. You know, uh, he got the right cinematographer for this one too. They almost had Roger Deakins, but I think he backed out uh, for, for whatever reason. I'm sure De- had- uh, Deakins did uh, Blade Runner with them though. He did, right? yeah. yeah. And, and Sicario. And Sicario, okay. Oh, and Prisoners, as a matter of fact. Yeah, he did, oh, okay. did all three of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cinematography was done by, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. His last name is Frazier. Greg or maybe Grieg. There's an I in there, E-I-G. Okay. I'm going to call him Greg Frazier. Sorry mm-hmm. if I mispronounced your name, <laughs> sir. I, I remember the first time I noticed his work was on that Star Wars movie he did. Was it Rogue One? That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. yeah, he did. And I, I'm not, I, I, I didn't like Rogue One, but I thought mm. it looked fantastic. And the sense of scale that they put into it was pretty impressive. The scenes with the big walkers, the, the ATAT walkers and the, the guys on the ground running towards them while taking fire. I'd never seen that in a Star Wars movie. And it felt like those big gigantic walkers were 
actually big, gigantic machines. And uh, that was the first time I'd really seen that kind of scale in a Star Wars movie. And I was really impressed with it. In fact, that was the only thing I had nice to say about that movie was (laughs) the cinematography. I was like, wow, this movie looks like a legit movie, even though the script is garbage. (laughs) That's funny you say that. I I enjoyed it, but I uh, also kind of like the framing of it as sort of like almost like a South Pacific war movie um, with the sort of, you know, espionage intrigue. I thought that was interesting. I thought, you know, there's a lot in the uh, Star Wars pantheon that I'm finding more and more unnecessary as time goes by. But I, I, I enjoyed the experience of watching it when it came out. You know, the, the cinematographer did a great job on that. He clearly does a lot of good work with scale. And this movie really uh, drives that home. The sense of scale mm-hmm. is just jaw dropping. I'm glad it translated because that's it's not something that even though I, I mean, I love I adore David Lynch and I love a lot of the things he did with his version of Dune. Impossible to capture the scale in, in my opinion, impossible to capture the uh, the just how villainous Harkonnen was. You know, if you watch the 80s, dude, I don't know, 83, 84, I forget what year. It came 84. Out. Yeah. 84. Um, if you watch Lynch's Dune, you know. Baron Harkonnen is kind of like this buffoon. You know, he's a bad guy, obviously, but he's not menacing. He's not terrifying. He's like laughable. And I think that's kind of what Lynch was trying to do. But if you watch, you know, Stellan Sarsgaard as as Baron von Harkonnen, you kind of get that sense that you get in the book, that foreboding. This guy's a monster. He's capable of, you know, absolute evil, you know. And, and that's something that I thought that this movie, that Villeneuve did a really good job. The Sardukar, uh, you know, just how menacing and and wicked uh the baddies in this movie are actually comes across in a way that was just kind of cartoony in the first one we're introduced to the sardaukar with their being anointed with the blood of defeated foes on their foreheads yeah or or something like that could be i think possibly sacrifice their own uh from among their own ranks or maybe they were captured i'm not I don't recall. There's a lot of like um, hallmarks in the film that Villeneuve used that aren't in the book. He takes some liberties, mostly visual sort of visual moments and these aesthetic choices that are really clever and fit into Herbert's work, but aren't, you know, nodded to or acknowledged in, in the book. There's um, the Sardaukar throat singing, which became kind of like a popular sort of became a meme. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's not in the book, but it, it's sort of like you, you understand, okay, this, um, warfare is the religion of these guys, right. Or, right. um, the Atreides house having the bagpipes, uh, and having this sort of like, it's like a like sort of Scottish iconography again, not in the books, but you kind of get the sense. It's like, Oh, that's a thing that's connecting to them them to the earth of the ancient past, you know, mm-hmm. um, just these little choices that Villeneuve made that the um, bullfighting, but that's not a Villeneuve choice. That's from that the is in the book. That is, yeah, in the book, it does yeah. tie it to, to like ancient earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are certain little liberties he takes where, um, you know, and again, Frank Herbert threaded all kinds of things, particularly things like, you know, Middle Eastern culture There's all kinds of, it's, I mean, rich with that but there's all kinds of things in the book that are maybe hinted at that Villeneuve really sinks his teeth into and I thought mm-hmm. that was very cool it's he's clearly a guy who's like loves these books is obsessed with these books this isn't a guy who's like you know acquired the rights and is you know sort of thinks of the book as like okay I'll just kind of riff on this this is a dude who clearly is you know has a true love for the source material he doesn't look at the source material as an IP to be right. mined. You know, it's something mm-hmm. that he actually cares about. And if you watched any of the press that he did for this, he kept referring to it as his Bible. Yeah. 
you know, when they would ask him, did you did you go to the 1984 Dune or did you try to find the Jodorowsky Dune book? And it, right. he's no, none of that is like, that's that's all fine. I, the book itself was the Bible and I always had a copy of it. And anytime I just hit a wall, I would open it up and, and mm-hmm. find the inspiration. The answer was always right there. Yeah, the, the Sardaukar, completely scary. Just mm-hmm. uh, Baron Harkonnen, just a nightmare. Another thing that he... He added, and I'm a little confused about this one, is the little spider pet. That's not in the novel. The spider in the uh, in the film, absolutely not in the text. But, you know, some some people have said it could be him alluding to foreshadowing something we could see in the next one. Some of the genetic engineering that uh, that happens in that universe or something. And some people are like, I just wanted to put a weird, creepy spider pet. in." Sure. <laughs> The script is out there on the internet, and when that moment comes, it describes the creature as a latex spider-human hybrid. Yeah, it's sort of like a BDSM spider person pet. I want to talk about the editing in this movie a little bit. Really interesting choice that they made with this one. And what I mean is this was edited by Joe Walker, who also doubled in the movie. He was the voice of the book, the little docu-book that... Oh, right. It's telling yeah. young Paul about the, the savage Fremen. Yeah, that's that's the editor, Joe Walker. There's a lot to communicate to the audience. And this movie is a good two hours, 35 minutes long. And there's a lot to tell the audience. And they don't really use exposition dumps. No. I do think that those uh, those narrated moments you just mentioned, they're a, a sort of a good way of injecting that knowledge without it feeling too uh, forced. Yeah. We first see these weird little moments pop up when Lady Jessica tells Paul, make me give you the water. Make Mm -hmm. me give you this glass of water. Use the voice on me. We see her reach over and slide the glass over to him. Mm -hmm. But then he uses the voice. And then we see it actually happen, which made I I was like, what is that? She she gave it to him. But then that was happening in her head. That was her picturing him doing that. And then he actually did it. I didn't pick it up until like the third time I watched it. Then later on, it, it happens when he uses the voice. Mm-hmm. We see something happen before it happens. And that's actually communicating to us. These are Paul's visions. This is going on in Paul's head. And some of this stuff's going to happen and some of it's not. Right. It's never laid out. No one ever just puts that in plain English. You just have to kind of pay attention to the editing and what the editing is trying to show you. And, and sort of his visions of the Holy War. I like how that was sort mm-hmm. of stitched in at one point or the visions of 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 Lady Jessica, once she she uh, you know becomes the the Benny Gesserit leader within uh, the Fremen people, you yeah, know, the, you sort of see those brief telegraphed moments, and and he, and again, and also like um, when Paul first when his his foot hits the sand on a rock Arrakis, and you kind of see inside his head for a moment, you see him experiencing like this his first taste of spice, sort of awakens that ancient memory in him and everything. Sort of those subtle moments that. Uh, that are threaded in there, I think are really subtle. It's like you said, there's no exposition dumps. Again, sort of with the, um, whatever you want to call it, like his sort of encyclopedia of, um, you know, the, the, the knowledge that's instilled in the little device or whatever you kind of get hitchhiker's guide. Yeah. 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 Sort of a hitchhiker's guide. You get those moments and that's obviously for the benefit of the audience, but him getting it as sort of a student on this planet, it works. It's not, it's not voiceover. Um, you know, they didn't include Princess Irulan uh, at all, uh, which, and she's sort of a Greek chorus in the books to some extent. And David Lynch's version, she pops up 
Now, of course, Florence Pugh is currently in talks to uh, play Princess Irulan in the second installment, which is great uh, casting, I think. But yeah, she's not used as sort of that because she there's a quote from some of her text at the beginning of each chapter in Dune. It sort of points you in the direction where this is going. It's a lot of exposition. It's a lot of sort of foreshadowing. But we don't have any of that. Uh, Villeneuve didn't use that at all in this in this film. I appreciated that. I kind of like it when, and, and sometimes you don't you don't really realize that they're showing you this stuff, or your brain is noticing stuff that you maybe aren't. Your conscious self isn't really right. noticing. And also, I I, I like um, you know I think there's a little bit of an obsession with the fan service Easter egg thing, particularly in sci-fi, particularly in and IP yeah. used before these days that like. You know, it's all we all think it's fun to pick up on something that we know that maybe not everybody does. It's a fun thing. But I think that it's kind of becoming a crutch in a lot of like the Marvel and Star Wars stuff where it's like, oh, that's a reference to this from the comics. Oh, that's a reference to the previous film version of this. And he's not doing that. He's not laying out tons of, you know, tons of little things for you to go. Oh. But it's just enough sort of the, like the, the the desert mouse that, of course, being a reference to to Paul being the uh, Lisan Al Gaib, I think is how you say it. The the you know mouse of the desert mm-hmm. or whatever. So there's like much more subtle uh, references than rather just laying a fat Easter egg for us all to go. Oh, that was in the book. So the differences from novel to movie. Do you have any of them that just stand out as being particularly maybe well, not egregious but uh, prominent? Yeah. You know, I would say the the absence of a couple of characters that are very obviously going to be included in part two. But I think Villeneuve did that to keep from overburdening, kind of weighing us down in this first one. You know, we don't see uh, Princess Irulan at all. But uh, but yeah, I think that Villeneuve kind of had to peel away some of the narrative layers just because it would be sort of too overwhelming to get into two and a half hours. Um Sure. You know, and, and there are there is a sort of subtle elements and turns that are just sort of snipped out. I think that's just sort of the nature of movie making. You can't be inside a character's head. And if you don't want to use narration and voiceover for the most part, you're going to lose all of that stuff. You have to show rather than tell. Right. So I think a lot of the a lot of the differences between the book and this version are subtle enough that none of them are really none of them feel that impactful. None of them feel like that big of a difference. I think he was really interpreted as pretty much as faithfully as you really can while still doing your own thing. Yeah. It's a fine line to walk for a filmmaker when you adapt something, especially something that's as rapidly beloved by its fans. Yeah. And Lynch did something pretty different where he injected his own weird uh, sci-fi elements that weren't at all in the books. The guild navigators have the, have their saying it's kind of like the litany of fear, but it's different where they have this thing that they acquire the stains, blah, blah, blah. It's this thing that they say. And I remember expecting to come across that in the book because I watched the Lynch version first and I never found it. And then um, looked it up and sure enough, that was something that Lynch came up with himself or what the guild navigators looked like. You have to change it enough because of course, film and books, they're, they're two different mediums, each with its mm-hmm. own strengths, its own weaknesses you want to play to that and you don't want to be a slave to what's written down. Also there's there, you can't change it too much, but on the other hand, if you just shoot what's in the book, that doesn't necessarily make for good cinema. Like he got the spirit of it, right. And he got the broad strokes, correct. And you make a few changes here and there. He's uh, he's buffed up a few of the female characters, gave them more complete arcs. 
And he made Leah Kynes uh, a, a woman. In yeah, the he film, gender which, swapped the, the, yeah. that character, which you know that's that's all fine. That's you know gender swapping and stuff. I mean, unless it's I, you know, I can't even think of a reason why not to. I was going to come up with some obvious reason not to, but really, I I, I don't care. I mean, they could have made Paul a woman, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It it wouldn't. I guess it would have affected the whole Bene Gesserit situation. Yeah, there are rules within the universe that are, are based on biological sex, and yeah. a lot of people have talked about. There's problematic nature of of the depiction of women, and and maybe sort of his his use of certain themes that could be linked to sort of ethnicity and that sort of thing. And, yeah. And, and colonization there there's, well, I mean, and, and the whole book is, you know, is commentary on colonization and, and yeah. And, and all, all, all manner of things. And, and Frank Herbert was a pretty progressive guy in a, in a lot of regards, but you know, there needed to be more representation. I'm glad that there are a lot of people of color in the movie. I'm glad that it's, you know, I'm glad that Leah Kynes was a, uh, it was, it was cast as a, as a woman. And it's, it's, there's not quite so many, gender roles set within the universe that he created. I think he brought it into the 21st century in a way with this adaptation. That's pretty cool. There's little, little tweaks here and there, but I don't think, I think that Villeneuve is clearly so obsessed and in love with the source material and with Frank Herbert that it seemed like he was, you know, he would, it would be sacrilege to, to interpret it, to to go too far afield with anything, you know, it has his visual imprint on it. It's like you were saying, he's so good with scale with scope and Blade Runner 2049 and an arrival, you know, just putting yourselves in these yourself in these scenes. I just love living inside of his movies, you know, the visual world of his movies that he was able to put that stamp on Dune without changing the subject matter. You know, it's nice to see him branch out and make a movie that's not rated R like, Kids can go see this movie and it's, that's fine. There's, you know, it's the very first one. Most of his movies have very serious, heavy subject matter. And this one, there's blood and people die and so forth, but it's not, it's not prisoner's level. Oh, well, sure. We don't yeah. have that scene with Hugh Jackman and the hammer. It's, you know, but also it's funny, uh, you know, of course, now I, as if this had come out when I was a 12, 13 year old, of course, I would have tried to see it. But I also don't know how many 10, 11, 12 year olds are going to sit through a nearly three hour, you know, space epic. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, just the nature of the subject matter is it's adult, but it's not like prohibitively so or anything, you know. I'm sure some people that age would probably consider this movie boring. In fact, people my age consider the movie boring. Yeah, they, yeah, I've, I've, I've ha- I heard that from some folks. You know, it's uh, you know, it's if it if it just ain't your thing, it ain't your thing. You know, and it, yeah. and if if your uh, primary touchstone when it comes to sci-fi films are Star Trek or Star Wars, it's not action-packed like that. I mean, no. Um, there are, of course, there are battle scenes and, and all that, but it's not paced that way. And it was never really supposed to be. And I love the fact that this movie does. It reminds me of Star Wars, not in the obvious ways where George Lucas took his obvious influence from Dune in several mm-hmm. ways. But it reminds me of the original Star Wars trilogy in that it's a personal story and the effects are there to serve that period. They're not there to dazzle you, even though some of it is dazzling or was by those standards of the day. But that's all just the backdrop to this very personal story that that he's telling. And that's that's what this Dune is. It's a very Mm -hmm. personal story. It's someone who's politically and religiously extremely important to the galaxy. But at the same time, it's about him. 
It's about his relationship to his mother and his father and now to the Fremen and to the planet itself, but also like just the sheer scope. This movie exists in gigantic wide shots and in extreme close-ups, and there's not a whole lot of in-between. I thought that was a great choice. It's We have to give you the big shot of the gigantic sphere ship that comes down with the Imperial. Highliners. Uh, So (laughs) awesome looking. So cool looking. Yeah. also, you know, a lot of the, the dialogue plays out in extreme close-ups. Like, we're right up in Timothy Chalamet's face. And yeah, and like, it's a very beautiful cast, too. There's, a, you know, everybody's lovely to look at it in this movie. And fascinating looking and just great on screen. They all have yeah. powerful presence on screen. But, you know, Denny Villeneuve, and obviously I haven't, <laughs> haven't met the man or been on set or see how he works one-on-one, obviously. But people kind of say that George Lucas famously isn't really an actor's director. Right. Obviously, he's not very great with dialogue, right? He's a he's a big picture kind of guy, big ideas. But Denny Villeneuve manages to be both sort of a big picture visual guy and an actor's director, from what I can tell. I mean, every film, and it, part of it's by virtue of how good the performers are he gets in it. I mean, Amy Adams is one of my favorite actors of all time. You know, Ryan Gosling's incredible in Blade Runner 2049. The whole cast of Dune is really, really good. So it's kind of hard to go wrong when you have casts this strong. But, you know, these moments feel like intimate moments. They don't feel like a soundstage 16th take. Okay, it's we had to ADR it because there was set noise or whatever. It feels like, man, this could be like a chamber piece. Like this moment between these two characters, it's something to latch on to, too. And some of the people I know who saw the movie who aren't familiar with the book, don't really care about the universe or whatever, liked it because of, that, of the narrative tension or the performances or how good Sarsgaard is, and how creepy he is, and how incredible Zendaya looks. A lot of people I, that weren't familiar with um, the book, I think were like, well, what the hell Zendaya's in all the uh, all the promotional materials and she's supposed to be the co-star and she's in this movie for like 13 minutes. I'm like, well, wait for part two. <laughs> wait for part two. <laughs> I was just about to bring up that very issue. I, I heard several people complaining, like, well, she was barely in the movie. Like, well, just... like, Well, she's sort of the pivot point for Paul and everything sort of, um, without giving anything away, there's a push and pull for him with what his, his path, like his path is calling him to do as a very integral part of the human race's survival. And then what he as an individual feels and is feeling for Cheney. And that's sort of the internal struggle of what I think we'll see a lot of in the second one is his feelings for her and the Fremen and the planet itself. And then his calling to sort of at the center of the universe and literally be the, the, the leader of the human race. think we're pretty much tapped out i think i am anyway how about you <laughs> i mean to be honest with you i could probably talk about dune all day long but I, I i'm not sure anybody needs to hear hour seven of my dune takes but yeah um you know extremely very looking very much looking forward to the to the next one a couple of years out right about a year and a half away and closer I to two years october 2023 october 2023 yeah so a year and a half from now 
Do you have anything you want to plug before we wrap it up? We'd love it if people read the Nashville scene, support local media, support alt weeklies. Um, you know, we're out there every week for free uh, covering the news and arts. And yeah, just appreciate anybody who reads local news. Thank you so much for your insight. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Jason. I'll probably rewatch the movie again, I don't know, tonight, tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, do it, man. It's great. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. Thanks, buddy. Mm-hmm. Later. And that's it. That does it for the episode, and that does it for season three. I'd like to thank my guest today, Patrick Rogers. You can find him on Twitter. That's at D Patrick Rogers. That's Rogers with a D R O D G E R S. And while you're at it, go ahead and follow the Nashville scene. That's at Nashville scene. You can find us on Instagram at filmography underscore club underscore podcast. Give us a follow there. And while you're at it, feel free to give us a rating. Maybe leave a review if you're feeling generous with your time. I'd like to thank Michael Eads, Will Fox and Ross Warner. Filmography Club is produced by the hardworking folks that we own this town. For Filmography Club, I'm Jason Cavanis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>